I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News, and now it's time for the Jack Riccardi Show. All right, Christian, thank you very much. Good afternoon. Welcome to our dreadful little show for Monday, 8th day of May. Now, we had the city election over the weekend, and we're going to talk a lot about that today. And we're going to pick up a few candidates along the way later in this hour. The runner-up in the mayor's race, Chris Shukart, will be with us. And I got a question about this election. Now, you know what happened. You know that Prop A was defeated. 72% voted no. But you also know that around the city, progressive candidates, people who are simpatico with the stuff that was in Prop A, including people that waved it on through to put it on the ballot, they won. And they won by two-thirds to three-fourths of the vote. So how do you explain... I mean, you have a pool of voters, right? I mean, you have the same bunch of voters who gave a big thumbs down to Prop A, but then did not carry that thinking over into their voting for mayor, for city council, and and so forth. And and I have to assume that there were some of the same, these were some of the same people. In other words, there had to be. Numerically, mathematically, there had to be people who voted against Prop A, but for Ron Nirenberg or for John Courage. And so I've been thinking about that. And I mean, obviously, the first thing to consider is they spent something like two and a half million dollars, the opponents of Prop A. They spent more money, exponentially more than the supporters of Prop A did, and, and way more than was spent in any or on any city council candidate or race. So, for starters, vote no on Prop A was the most frequently seen, televised, broadcast, elect, uh, you know, election message that there was. So money had a lot to do with it. Money had, had a lot to do with the ubiquitousness of that, of that message. But then I was also thinking, Prop A was words, but the race for mayor and city council were people. And the thing about words is they're black and white, they mean what they mean. But with candidates, with people, and I'm not saying that you think this way, but I think a lot of people think this way, you can project onto people. You can see what you want to see. You can imagine that they are a certain way, even though there's no evidence to suggest that or support that. So I think people project onto candidates based on, on their name, on their familiarity, on there being the incumbent, on how many yard signs they see. I mean, who knows, right? The yard sign game, and by yard signs, I mean all the signs, the signs that are on fences and poles and medians and stuff. I mean, who who knows if just having a better sign game might be the difference in some of these races. And we know the signs must be important because in every election there's some controversy about candidate X tearing down candidate Y's signs. And we had a couple of districts where that happened this year. So how do you explain, is my first question, how do you explain this election? Big no for Prop A, big yes for the progressives on city council that still want to do the stuff that was in Prop A and are just as dangerous 
210-599-5555. Let's talk about that. As I mentioned, we'll pick up some candidates along the way. Uh, We'll talk to some people who were on the inside of this thing and see what they have to say. But the phone lines are open for you, 210-599-5555. They're open right now. I had them blocked. Now they're... (laughs) I was I was lying. Now they're open. And by the way, um, is it also possible that what we're seeing around the country is is starting to penetrate for people? Like you know the the rioting and the and the uh, unrest and the mayhem in other cities that have Soros backed DAs like we do, that have fast growing populations, that have a lot of illegal immigrants, that have a lot of the a lot of the the the, the growing pains and the conditions of a big city, are people starting to realize here in San Antonio, hey, we live in a big city. We live in a city that, that can go down the road of a, of a San Francisco or a, or a Chicago or, or what have you. Is it, is it possible people are starting to see those things? What are your thoughts about that? The border is going to be a big story this week because uh, t- I always want to say level 42 because I'm a child of the 80s. Title 42... Uh, goes away on Thursday. And it's hard to imagine the border crisis getting worse or getting worse suddenly, but the expectation is that it will, that the surge is happening and will happen. And as you look at the, the border and you look at what is coming out of Washington and you look at what's coming out of Austin, do you believe, and people say this a lot, and I wonder if they're thinking about it when they say it, People will say Biden is incompetent. Biden is an idiot. The, 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 you know, Mayorkas should be impeached. They don't know what they're doing. Respectfully, I have to disagree. And I, I realize I may be in the minority on this, but I, I think they know exactly what they're doing. I don't think this is because Biden, I mean, Biden is incompetent, but, but let's, let's be honest. I don't want to belabor this point. Biden is not literally making all these decisions. Oftentimes, I'm not sure he's even aware of them. The people doing this are doing it on purpose. This is a designed chaos. This is a an engineered situation. And the, there's two ways I know that. First, I know it because there's no inability control that border we are governed by the most authoritarian people our country has ever propelled to national power we have the most authoritarian unanswerable federal government we've ever had we have blown through the the guardrails and the predictions of people like Ann Rand and you know, Lois Lowry, and all these people that wrote these dystopian books of the future. Here's what will happen in the future. Here's how people will live. Here's the, here's the, the, you know, here's how they'll be controlled and suppressed. We've blown through all that. 1984, Animal Farm, you know, we've, we've, that, those are interesting reads, but we're already, we're already there. They're not warnings anymore. It's not a warning when it's already happening, right? These people, who were in charge of our country, could absolutely shut down the border. They shut down the whole country. If you recall, a few years ago, they shut you down. 
So they could they could control the border. Ergo, they're choosing not to. The other reason I know they're doing it on purpose is because in the chaos are opportunities. Progressives push forward. Somebody once said it this way. They push forward five steps every chance they get. And then even if they get forced back two or three steps by losing an election or a Supreme Court decision, they've still gained two steps. So in the midst of the border chaos, they are getting what they want, and they will continue to get what they want, and they are getting people into the country who will remain in the country. They are going to put them on a pathway to citizenship. They are counting on their votes, and and, and we can certainly sit here and say, and I've said it and you've said it, they may be wrong to count on all those votes, but that's what they're counting on. Now, this is not incompetence. This is intentional. So what do you think about that? It's our JR poll today, powered by River City Oral Surgery. And you may disagree, and, and I want to hear your disagreement. If you if you think they're just incompetent, let's talk about that. But I, I think it's too easy when you disagree with people to just call them incompetent. That's sort of like that's sort of like a shortcut. I, I, I want to look at what I think they're really up to and figure out what the game is because I don't think this is incompetence. But we can talk about that. So we got the news of this terrible uh, shooting in Allen, Texas on Saturday. And our hearts and our prayers go out to the families and the victims, those that are still struggling with their injuries. There's something very banal about going to the mall on a Saturday. Some of us are old enough to remember when you would never, ever, ever think that was a dangerous situation. But obviously it's become one of those places and one of those times where anything can happen. And I have to say, there's, there's a lot that we can talk about here, but I have to say what really jumped out at me this time was the confusion of the news media coverage. And and I don't mean the, the fog of war, like, you know, there's in, in, in the initial minutes and hours of a terrible thing, it's hard to get facts. I'm, I'm not talking about that. And the police can't talk to you because they're busy dealing with the situation and <clears throat> processing the scene. I'm not talking about that. As a reporter, you, you understand that you will not have all the facts in the first 10 seconds. You, you, you know this. The confusion I'm talking about that I saw play out on television Saturday was the confusion of the of the agenda or the the confusion of the narrative. They were so eager to have this be a white guy. They were so eager to have this be a gun nut. And they struggled with the identification of the gunman. He's a 33-year-old Hispanic man. And you could see the, the, the little, uh, you know, wheels spinning and overheating and running off their sprockets in their heads as they process this. But then, but then they were able to say, oh, but wait a minute. He has Nazi tattoos and he had some right wing sticker, but they didn't really know all that. Those were just rumors and, and, you know, speculations some of which have come true and some of which haven't. 
But they were very, very fast to make this guy a white supremacist. And I, I, I know this is not the most important question because people have died and people are hurting. But I'm kind of wondering, can, can you be Hispanic and be a white supremacist? Because they really need him to be. And it's interesting to me how the media assign roles and properties or qualities to race and to ethnicity, but then they can change it up. It's like you're playing a game, and I know this is not a game. I don't mean to say that it is. But it's like if you were playing a game, and in the middle of the game, the person who had the game or owned the board said, oh, now we're going to change the rules. Now this isn't a race, this is an ethnicity. Or now this is not an ethnicity, this is a race. And now we're going to say that uh, what we said before was not possible is possible. And now we're going to say that, see what I mean? It, it was almost as if they just had to cram what they had to work with into what they needed this story to be. It's a horrific story. It's gruesome. It's shocking. It's ghastly. And I, I realize what I'm asking is not the most important part of it. But if you can't verify the facts, how is it that you can immediately verify the narrative? Why is it so important when there's a mass shooting? to find out the race of the dude that did it, e even when he's dead. Now, if he's alive and he's at large, you've got to broadcast a description of the person. I get that. This person was dead. And why is it that sometimes the the race or the gender or the, it, 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 in, the, the in the case of Nashville, the transgender person, why is it that that, that fact sometimes demotes the story? The Nashville story got deep-sixed fast. And we still haven't seen the so-called manifesto. But this attack maybe will linger in the news longer if they can make this killer what they need him to be. But, but it's going to be tough because he doesn't give them a lot to work with. And so, does it seem weird and sick to you as it does to me that rather than just report the story, and, and the initial reporting is always incomplete and very sketchy, it has to be, does it, does it bother you that you now know where they're going to go with it based on who, what the, not even who the person is, like their name or their biography, just the skin color. And, and maybe in some cases, the 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 gender identity. So, I I I do think there could be many right answers. I don't think there has to be just one. As to how we got the results we got in the city election, how do you read it? Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Prop A, heavily defeated, even to the surprise of its opponents. But otherwise, it looked like a pretty typical San Antonio election with progressive candidates and the kind of people that obviously like what's in Prop A and will continue to push for, you know, the five steps forward thing. They're, they're all in. They all won. 
there was no uh, there was no Prop A effect on the on the city council races or the mayor's race. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Also talking about the border. Is it incompetent or intentional? And the uh, killer in Allen. There was a book that came out in the early sixties about Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi war criminal. And I forget the full title of the book, but part of the title was. The Banality of Evil. The, I think it was the subtitle. The Banality of Evil. And the idea of the book was that Eichmann was just sort of a bureaucrat. He didn't really have any thoughts about what he did. He did evil. He did terrible things. He, 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 he got people killed. And it wasn't that he didn't know that. Of course he knew that. But what made him sort of frighteningly fascinating to the people that wrote about him and studied him was that he had no real opinions. He was really just trying to advance his career in the Nazi bureaucracy. And when I look at these shooters around the country, I I see a banality of evil. I see people that are kind of drone-like. It's almost like they've been programmed. It's almost like they don't really, you know, not, not, not that I know what they should be like, but they don't, they don't seem to be that sort of Charles Manson crazed, you know, they have this kind of, um, going through the motions quality. It seems like the banality of evil to me. And again, we don't know yet, but some of the things that have come out about this killer and Allen indicate that he, he thought this was a game. He wrote about the body counts of other mass killers. He wrote about how you have to get the body count up and what the media will react to and comparing himself, what he was going to do to other shooters. He, he wrote about the Nashville killer. 210-599-5555. Allen is on 550 and one KTSA. Allen, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, I was just listening to you. It's the first time I called in. I've been here about two years. I moved from uh, North Carolina. So I, I just wondered when they announced his name and they said he's a white supremacist. I know there are white people with uh, the last name of Gonzalez and Sanchez that don't speak Spanish, but I just was wondering how a Hispanic person could be a white supremacist. That's what I'm wondering, but, yeah. Uh, the first thing on the application um, would be like, "Are you white?" Well, you know? it seems like it, it seems like for the media, Hispanic people can be white when they need to be white, and non-white when th- when they need them to be non-white. And and like they went to this guy's right. house, and his parents don't speak English. I mean, it it seems like if they were covering him in some other context, like if he had done something else, like if he had asked a question at a political rally or something, they would then they would they, he would very definitely not be white. But because of what he yeah. did, now he's white. Yeah, and it's just the, the media just covers it as far as the news, and they just play it up to every angle they can to get their agenda. So this is just to suppress guns. That's all it is. And if they I, but, I mean, it, it, do you think wall. people are starting to I, – I have to think people are starting to look at this, Alan, and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
how, how can he be a white? I mean, you, you can tell me he's a white supremacist, but how does that make any sense? It seems like you need him to be one. It doesn't seem like you discovered that he's one. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally agree. It's every time he turned the news on, just with the police shooting. If a police shoots somebody and he's the same color, it just says police shoots on our right, man. Right. But if and they move a on. white cop shooting anybody else, yeah. so it's just the media. Alan, thank you. I got to hold you there, but I appreciate you, sir. Thank you for thank you for calling in. I hope you'll call again. And welcome to South Texas from North Carolina. And joining us on the KTSa Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line is mayoral candidate came in second Saturday night to uh, Ron Nirenberg, uh, Chris Schuhart, and Chris. Welcome back to the uh, show. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me back. So the mayor was reelected to his uh, fourth term. Um, you uh, had, I think, 23% of the vote. He had 61% of the vote. Were you surprised by the, the numbers, or or how, how do you feel about that kind of, uh, I guess, those kinds of percentages? Uh, you know, I mean, obviously we had hoped for a little bit more, uh, enough to get him into a runoff. Uh, but, you know, for what we had funding-wise, and, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't start till. February, I filed the last day uh, you were able to on uh, February 17th. Um, you know, I, I think it shows that, I mean, the message resonated with the, the voters we were able to reach and connect with. Um, you know, they, they want their city government to work, and they want it to work to the same standard that a business would have to work as far as the budget, customer service, et cetera. And, you know, I think if we just would have had a little bit more time and a little bit more money to connect with a few more voters, I think we would have seen a better percentage on that. I got to ask you about the Prop A issue because obviously exponentially more money and messaging and advertising and signage was devoted to Prop A than to any other race, probably to all the other races combined. And, and so on the one hand, that was a great distraction. On the other hand, shouldn't the 72%, uh, you know, rejection of Prop A voted, you know, better for you? Do you think it should have, or, or do you understand why it didn't? I, I think it just it came down to, to reaching the voters. Um, you know, I, I think most voters heard that, you know, they heard Prop A, they heard Prop A bad, and then, you know, Ron changed his tune at the beginning of April and, you know, all of a sudden was against Prop A, and, you know, he was able to hit four times the house as I was with mail and you know, all of his, you know, his, his weak spot was obviously public safety. If you look at what we've been dealing with, with crime and, uh, you know, the violence here in town and, uh, you know, his, his mailers made him seem like he was Mr. Law and order. And, you know, I just, I guess with the name recognition, people, people said, well, I guess he's got it under control. So they didn't look into anything else. I mean, you, I think you told me, and I know most, correct me if, if I'm wrong about this, but I think you told me when we had you on before, and I know most of the candidates we had on in, in the district races said that crime was, was either the number one or number two thing people would, would mention when they would meet people. Um, if people are afraid, why did they reelect everybody? It's almost like it's Stockholm syndrome, to be honest with you. I, I, I can't make uh, I can't make heads or tails of it. I, I work the polls from start to finish every day during early voting and on election day, and uh, I mean I was floored with the number of voters that I, I talked to at the polls who were 
I, they felt Ron had a good, they, they were upset about crime, but they felt Ron had a good plan and was, was handling it. And I, you know, can't dedicate that much time to standing there and arguing with somebody. So I would just move on. But right. I, I really wish I had an answer for that. I, I know it, we're talking with Chris Shukart on KTSA. I, I know that you've never run for office before this. Do you feel like you would want to do this again? Do you feel like that, that you would, you would get back into the ring again? Oh, I, absolutely. Uh, you know, after seeing all these different district races play out and, you know, the, the people who are running and the things that are going on, I mean, uh, and, you know, I said it from the start, I mean, we need people who have created economic commerce, actually created economic commerce uh, and lived in the real world to, <laughs> to be involved in city government, or if not, we're just going to keep going out into the weeds and, and there's no benefit to anybody in, in the direction we're going right now. Would would it be another run for mayor, or are you open to other things? Are people are think are people bringing things to you now and saying, "Hey, we like the way you did this. Would you consider getting into this race or, or pursuing this office? Is anything like that happening, or or is it too soon to be thinking that way?" Yeah, I've, I've actually been surprised the, the number of phone calls I've had today. I've, I've had numerous people reach out and you know either just you know tell us, "Hey, y'all ran a good race," or you know for the time we had and the money we had, we put up a good fight and. You know, I've had a couple different offices mentioned to me, uh, you know, and I'm going to just reevaluate, see where we're at, and, you know, whatever I run for, I want to I make sure it's something where I can have the most positive impact within the, within the city and the county. I know you put a lot of your own money into this. I, I forget the numbers, but, I mean, it was a lot. It was most of the money that you had. Uh, would it be – I would imagine that after you're no longer a new face, people now have heard of you before, they know how you run – would it then be much easier to raise more money? Because it does seem like it takes a lot more money just to get on the board, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we kind of knew going into early voting that we were probably about $50,000 shy of where we needed to be to guarantee a runoff. Um, but having come in so late, you know, I was willing to to run mostly just with my funds instead of allocating a lot of time to fundraising. You know, I wanted to allocate as much time as I could to reach voters. Uh, so I definitely think now with name recognition and having 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 a race under my belt that the uh, the fundraising aspect of it would be a lot easier. All right. Well, we'll definitely keep in touch and see what happens next. Chris Shukart, uh, congratulations on the race you did run, and and thanks for coming on today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate you. Thanks for your support. Right. Four forty five on KTSa. Jack Riccardi. You can join the show at two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. We're talking about the. Election results here in San Antonio and the, the kind of the paradox, I guess, or whatever that you'd have the, the crushing defeat of Prop A and the overwhelming reelection of all the people who are the progressive woke left that, that, you know, in essence, I guess what I'm saying is Prop A was both a piece of paper and it was a, it was a movement. We defeated the piece of paper. We reelected the movement. And so you kind of wonder where, where this goes. You, you clearly don't have some sort of message that's been delivered, some sort of, okay, people are, people are fed up. We better back it down. And even I, I've had a lot of people say to me, well, don't you think it was significant that, that the Ron Nirenbergs and the John Courages and the people that came out and, and changed and said, now I'm against Prop A? I, I don't think it's significant. I, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm too cynical. 
you can try to change my mind. I don't think they, I don't think they came to their senses or listened to you. I think they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. Supporting it first gave their base what they needed to hear. And then coming out later toward the end and saying, Hey, everybody, this, this is a little too crazy. We can't go. That was just a safety mechanism. By the way, remember what they said when they came out against it. They didn't say these are bad ideas. They said we can't enforce this. That's really an important distinction if you think about it, right? I mean, if I tell you I want to do X, but they won't let me, that's very different than me coming out and saying, I would never, ever do X, and I think X is the worst idea ever, and I'm completely against it with every fiber of my being. They, they had their cake and they ate it too. A panel in California has approved recommendations for slavery reparations, uh, voting over the weekend uh, on uh, how to do slavery reparations. Uh, a black resident in California uh, could receive more than $1.2 million in compensation. But residents who attended a public meeting in Oakland uh, were outraged at that amount, saying that $1.2 million wouldn't be nearly enough and suggesting that $200 million would be more appropriate. This is all going to be based on age and how long you lived in California and stuff like that. Um, $1.2 million, $200 million. Are they even going to do this? Are they actually ever going to pay reparations? Anywhere? Slavery reparations? I, I, I say no. I'm not even getting into whether or not we should. But before we even get into that, and again, I, I, I admit to being a cynic about this, but it costs nothing to talk about reparations. It costs nothing to promise them. It costs nothing to get people's hopes and expectations up. It costs nothing to tell them they deserve them. Or to point out that the U.S. government has paid reparations in the past to other groups of people, i.e. the, the uh, interned Japanese during World War II. Um, I think it's cheap to talk, but I don't think they'll ever do it. And not just because where you're going to get the money and, and how are you going to determine. Not even because I think the courts would strike it down. I think the reason this will never happen, and I want to know what you think, 210-599-5555, I, th- I think the reason this will never happen is because this will only be popular with the people who would be getting the money and a small sliver of guilt-riddled, elitist, white liberals. There isn't any other sort of base for this. Other minority groups, other races, Asian American, they're not going to be for this. And remember, at the end of the day, you can have formulas and commissions and reports, but it's politicians. We know how they do things, and we know what makes them move. They can't do something that has a very narrow basis of support. They want to be popular. They don't want to be right or moral. They want to be popular. 
this is not popular enough to ever do. I, I, I 100% uh, believe they will never enact it, which is not a reason to ignore it uh, or, or uh, for us not to cover it. But I, I just, knowing the way they work, the, the value of reparations to politicians is in the, the promising of them, the anticipation of them, the, the posturing over them. But if you ever actually started to pay out these sums of money to this very small group of people, all of your other constituents would come for you. You know, they would, they would, they would have you by the fanny in the next election. And they know it. So there's a lot of other reasons. Like I said, there's, there's the, you know, the, 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 the whole constitutional dilemma. We've talked about this before. There's the problem of the formula itself. There's the fact that in California, which was not a slave state, um, how are you determining eligible recipients? There's obviously massive disagreement about the amounts. They tried to do all these other things. We're not only going to give you direct cash payments. We're going to eliminate debt. We're going to give you guaranteed income. We're going to uh, give you breaks on buying houses. There's all this other lard and pork that's attached. But again, at the end of the day, they do stuff that makes them popular. And it has to make you popular with a workable number of people. The advocates for reparations already have the votes of the people to whom they're giving the reparations. It doesn't make them popular with any other group or type of voter or demographic. So I don't think they'll do it. We're going to convene a brain trust uh, here to uh, figure out this uh, 2023 San Antonio election. Uh, welcoming now to the show on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softener Newsmaker Lines, Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist for the San Antonio Express News. Gilbert, good to have you. Good afternoon. Thank you, Jack. And also joined by our good friend and another uh, alumni from uh, or alumnus from Gang of Four, uh, Eddie Aldrete, who... Uh, is the CEO of Aldrete Strategic Partners, was the co-chair of the San Antonio Safe Pack uh, that opposed uh, Prop A and was also a treasurer for uh, victorious uh, District 10 City Councilman Mark White. So uh, very involved in this election was Eddie Aldrete, and he's always involved. Eddie, it's good to have you back. Good afternoon. Thank you, Jack. Great to be here. So I'm going to start with you, Gilbert. Um to kind of walk us through these uh, election results from Saturday night, um, two runoffs, District 1 and District 7, why they went to runoffs, and uh, what you generally see as the pattern in the mayor's race and the other uh, eight city council races. I mean, there, there weren't a lot of surprises. Most of the incumbents did well. I mean, the one exception is Mario Bravo in District 1. Um, and people will remember he was censured by his council mm-hmm. colleagues last year after an incident which he berated uh, his then colleague uh, uh, Anna Sandoval uh, at council chambers. Um, I think there was some feeling that he might, there, we all thought there'd be a runoff, but I think uh, I was a little surprised mm-hmm. that he didn't do better than he did. He finished about eight percentage points behind Sukor, yeah. an education consultant. So I think that played a role in, in, in uh, his performance. In District 7, we got an open seat, and um, so I think we had a couple of strong candidates there, and I think we kind of expected that would be a runoff. How do you explain, help me understand, that you, Prop A would be defeated 
uh, by 72% of the voters. Mm -hmm. But that same body of voters, and there had to be some overlap, there had to be some Venn diagram here, right? Some of those same voters then elected progressive left uh, candidates. How does that make sense to you? I think what what happens is, uh, you know, the... uh, you had a couple of incumbents in District 2 and District 5 who were Prop A supporters. I think that so much of um, the what we see in, in city council elections has to do with the constituent services. And um, I think that the voters in those uh, districts, I think, were, were reasonably happy with how their their council members were, were doing as far as the engagement that they were seeing um, from the, the council staff. So I think that that played a a big part of it. And I think that the positions on Prop A didn't stick so much. Uh, you know, Sikor, who I mentioned in District 1, she finished first there. She got 34%. She had come out in favor of Prop A. She got a lot of uh, pushback on that at at forums uh, during the campaign, but it didn't necessarily translate into uh, the election results. Eddie Aldrete, same question for you. I mean, Prop A loses big, but the same voters hand big victories to these woke uh, candidates. Right. So I think if you look at um, uh, District 9, John Courage, I think the Courage campaign was concerned that 19% of the voters that were turning out were on the north side They ten- um, and they were uh, had not voted in a municipal election in the last six years. And they said that they were being driven to the polls by Prop A. Uh, but yet, uh, Courage won with 62% of the vote. He's one of those that has uh, moderated his positions over time. Um, and he's mastered, to Gilbert's point, he's mastered the art of constituent service. Now, the interesting race, I think, that sets the example for the question that you've asked, Jack, is um, with... Jeremy Roberts. So uh, Jeremy was um, supported by the San Antonio Police Officers Association, very, very adamantly uh, strong in opposition to Proposition A, um, yet he came in third place and didn't make the runoff. Now, one interesting thing about the proposition, 140,000 people voted on the proposition, 100,000 against, 40,000 in favor. But when the petition was submitted, it was submitted to City Hall with 37,000 signatures. So that means that uh, their growth from the filing of the petition to Election Day uh, only grew by 3,000 votes. So I think even some of the the constituency groups that Act for SA, Texas Organizing Project, and MOVE, um, even some of those supporters uh, did not cross over. In other words, they voted against Prop A, but they still voted for a a member of the council that they liked or they felt were supportive on other issues. I I see what you're saying. And, And, Gilbert, virtually every candidate we talk to, and I'll bet it's true at the editorial board of the paper as well, told us that voters were either worried about or even in some cases angry about crime. Right. Um, but if you really think that that's a problem, wouldn't you see more 
roiling of the waters for incumbents? Wouldn't there be at least uh, maybe a, a little bit of a of a closer call for the mayor who's most closely identified with that issue? And and, and there wasn't. I mean, it, it was as if they just said that, but then they voted the way they usually vote. I think I, I understand your point, but I think that, you know, if you look at the mayor, for example, his, his campaigning, uh, and I, I wrote about this the other day, that, you know, we tend to think, even though that council elections are nonpartisan, we tend to think of the mayor as probably as a as a Democrat. And Mark White in District 10 has run as a Republican. He's a conservative Republican. And uh, when I looked at the mailers that I was getting, I live in District 10, so I was getting mailers from both of them. There wasn't a lot of difference in what the, the mayor was putting out there. He was talking about mm-hmm. trying to get crime under control. He was, ta- he was touting the hotspot policing program, um, and he was talking about keeping taxes low. And so they were, the messages were pretty similar. So I think that um, if, if people were frustrated about crime, they, they weren't necessarily targeting any of the incumbents over it. But, I mean, if he, he's been mayor for six years, so if the crime rate's gone up or the perception of crime has gone up, however you want to think of it, yeah. how does that yeah. not uh, hurt him or at least give him... I, it did seem to me, maybe it was my imagination, he seemed to run a little harder uh, than I thought he would. But, yeah. yeah, in the end, the numbers didn't, you know, the the, the, the night was over very early, right? I think that there was a, a going into this cycle i don't think that any we didn't see the sort of major challenger uh emerge the way we saw greg brockhouse in 2019 and i think that you have people on the council looking to to run for mayor and they thought i'm going to wait two years and we're getting close to the to the end of the, the nuremberg era so i think that was part of it and uh, again he tried to take ownership of the public safety issues and say yes you know we've got a problem i'm doing all these things mm-hmm. to try to combat it before I let you both go, a quick question, a quick answer from each of you. Who on the council looks like the most likely future mayor? Um, well, I, I think I see two things. Uh, number one, there's three potential candidates from the current city council. Uh, Councilman Manny Palais in District 8, uh, Councilwoman uh, uh, Adriana Rocha Garcia in District 4, and Councilwoman uh, Melissa Cabello Haverda in District Six. Um, I, I, but as you talk to people around town, there still seems to be a, a strong yearning for a strong leader. So that could mean you might be able to see uh, a candidate from outside the, outside. the council, yeah, um, yeah uh, potentially come in. Gilbert, what? How do you look at that for for next time for two years? Yeah, I think that that's, that's right. And, and I mean, over the years, we've heard about people, some like Ray Saldana, you know, kind of back into the San Antonio politics. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know if that's going to, that we'd see something like that happen. But I think all of the, 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 the three that, that Eddie mentioned, I mean, they're, they are, I think are all very much interested in running. And I don't know, uh, if there is a real strong citywide name recognition for them. I think the, the, the city as a whole still has a lot to learn about those candidates. Yeah. And, and, Jack, and, and Gilbert just, Garcia. Yes. I just wanted to add one more thing to yes. your point about the, 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 how the council may change. I think you're seeing that if you look at district seven, a, a year ago with councilwoman, uh, Anna Sandoval, the council was more progressive because she was a progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at the two candidates there in, um, Marina Gavito and Dan Rossiter, uh, both of them have some business background. And then when you look at District 1, 
I know Sukor has a little bit of business background, and Mario Bravo is going to have to moderate himself a little bit uh, based on where he he turned out in second place and for the uh, facing the June 10th runoff. So you may see. Uh, a much more moderate council than we've seen in the past couple of years. See, I think you might just be trying to say that to make me feel better, but uh, but I'll I'll take it either <laughs> way. Whatever whatever your whatever your good intentions, I'll I'll certainly take them. Uh, Eddie Eldrette, okay. Gilbert Garcia, gentlemen, thank you both. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. having you. Is uh, Biden's handling of the border incompetent or intentional? As we're awaiting the moment of truth on Title 42, we're also going to talk some more about the Allen Mall shooting and the media coverage of that. And we've been talking about and talking with some of the players in the San Antonio 2023 election, results of which came in on Saturday night. And those results made our next guest the city councilman-elect for District 10. Mark White is joining us on the show. And congratulations, Mark White, on your on your victory. But I, but I, I have to... I have to temper that by saying, are you prepared to be a very lonely conservative on the San Antonio City Council? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, and uh, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm ready to go. Um, you know, as, I, as I've been saying throughout the campaign, um, if, I'm, if I'm the lone voice, I'm going to be a loud voice, but, but I'm ready to get in there and, and mm-hmm. try to work with the mayor and the other council folks uh, to get things done, because I think that's what uh, that's what the people of San Antonio want. You know, we've seen uh, people in this position ideologically get a lot done, and your predecessor did, and and so forth. Um, but at the same time, I mean, this this is a city council made up largely of people. You and I talked about this the last time you were on. It's made up largely of people who really aren't interested in like sidewalks and infrastructure. They're very interested in social justice and virtue signaling. And, and so, you know, I, I guess, how do you figure out what percentage of the time you're a, a go along guy and what percentage of the time you're a, you're that lone voice guy? Well, um, you know, the mayor is going to set the agenda and it'll be very, very unfortunate, uh, if, if we have to spend our time uh, on those issues you just mentioned. Um, it's a waste of time to me, and uh, I don't think that's what the people want us focused on. So um, if that's the path we're going to head down, um, I'm going to be the guy uh, that's up there uh, speaking loudly uh, for common sense, conservative values. Um, as I walked District 10 over the past uh, 8 to 10 weeks, um, that's what I know my district wants, and that's what I believe a large part of San Antonio wants. Uh, and I'm going to do everything I can uh, to steer the mayor and the council away from those um, those divisive uh, issues that that we're really not there to um, to deal with, and get them back to to the basics and the, the city issues that everybody in the neighborhoods actually care about. I wanted to ask you, we just had uh, Eddie Aldrete, who was your campaign treasurer, on, and, and Gilbert Garcia, and these guys know more about, they've, they've forgotten more about city politics than, than I'll ever know, but let me ask you the question I asked them. 72% of the voters said no to Prop A, but 60 to 75% of the voters said yes to progressive left-wing council candidates. Why do you think that happened? Well, Proposition A was a horrible idea from the beginning, and I'm very, very encouraged uh, that the overwhelming majority of the city um, said no to that. 
Um, in terms of why some of these progressive candidates won, um, I just think that a lot of folks um, have grown up here in San Antonio um, voting for progressives. The, the progressive agenda has been entrenched in, in some of these communities, and, um, and, and folks really haven't heard uh, probably a combination of haven't heard or been open to listening to the other side. And um, as a conservative, one of the things I want to do on council is uh, open up the eyes and ears of everybody across this city uh, to what's going on and how we can move forward in a, in a more positive manner. Um, progressive policies uh, are not what's made America great. Um, it's common sense, practical, conservative policies that have gotten this country to where it is. And, and unfortunately, this city has, has sort of been veering away from those in the past six to eight years. And uh, I'm committed to doing everything I can uh, to getting out to work in all of the districts uh, and to show folks the way I believe is, is the best path mm. forward. Do you get the sense that people maybe don't connect the headlines they see in Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Oakland, with those policies? In other words, that happens there, but that stuff would never happen here? Absolutely. You know, it's sort of human human nature, right? People see it and they think, oh, that's not going to happen to me. Um, but if Proposition A would have passed, uh, I think we would have seen the same thing here. People running out of Walmarts, running out of Targets uh, with TVs, some of the small mom-and-pop uh, convenience stores um, in, in the east and, and south and west sides of the city, you know, just uh, taken advantage of consistently. Um, it wouldn't have been good for everybody, but, but thankfully uh, we're not going to see it here. And, um, you know, I, I just thank all of the voters who got out and voted against Proposition well, A. And and congratulations again. I mean, that's impressive. I think you have, what, 58% in a, a very crowded field to uh, win that much and not have a runoff. Uh, Mark White in District 10, I know we'll talk again. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, and I uh, would love to be back anytime. All right, we'll do that. Um, joining us now on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line is uh, District 9 City Council candidate Jarrett Lipman. Uh, on Saturday night, he came up short in, in the uh, race against John Courage, finishing with 28% of the vote to Courage's 61%. Uh, he was second in a uh, four-person field, and he joins us uh, now. Welcome back to the show, Jarrett Lipman. Hey, Jack. Thanks so much for asking me to be on today. Well, first of all, I, I don't endorse candidates, but um, so I, I wouldn't have said this before, but I, I, I thought you were very impressive. I thought your answers were impressive. Um, and, and I know a lot of people we heard from after you were on with us uh, took away a really strong, uh, favorable impression of you. Um, were you expecting to do better than this? or Because I know we talked about this being a first-time uh, but maybe not a last time for you. How do you size up these numbers? Sure. I, I think the crazy part when you're running against an incumbent that is as entrenched as, as Councilman Courage has been, you really don't know where you're going to fall. So when, when we saw the 6,500 voters that put their faith in our campaign on Saturday, uh, I, I know our team felt great about the work that we have done, and we also have a picture of what we need to do for the next time. So, I mean, of course, we would have liked to have won. We would have liked mm -hmm. to have more voters. Uh, but I'm concentrated on those 6,500 folks that said, yeah, you're our guy, and, and where do we go from 
here to build those relationships with the rest of our base. It was a very unusual election in that the the ballot question dominated uh, financially in terms of media coverage. Did, was that helpful or hurtful to you as a as a new candidate and a challenger? You know, I, I'm so grateful that Prop A failed and, and that the work that, that we were able to do getting people to the box, whether they voted for me, they voted, you know, for the councilman, uh, the fact that we were able to motivate people to, to shut down something that would have been bad for San Antonio, I think, was important. So uh, I, I'm not sure that it, it helped or hurt the campaign uh, other than it, it was something that we were all in agreement on and passionate about. So I, yeah. I, I'm very, very happy that the proposition uh, went down in flames. You had, uh, it, we, we told your story when you were on before, but for folks that didn't hear, you were a music teacher at uh, Johnson High School. You uh, inspired a lot of your students to become involved, uh, or former students perhaps, to become involved in your campaign. So a lot of young people are getting their first exposure uh, to the, the, the process. And, and your, your first exposure, you, you sound like you want to do this again. You're, you're, you're saying next time. Are, are you... Are you committing to that, or is are you keeping your options open, or what? I'm I'm committed in the long haul for this. I I, I want our district to know. Uh, I believe in 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 our campaign and in our message. I'm committed to getting our message out there. I'm committed to meeting with more people. Uh, I think it's important that we have strong representation in our district, and my my resolve is as strong as it's been. So, uh, you know, I, I've learned enough that that we we've, we've got to let it breathe a little bit. But our team is going to be back to work pretty quickly, mm-hmm. studying the data and figuring out what we need to do better the next time. Our, our community mm-hmm. needs strong leadership. Well. I hope you'll come back here again, and uh, we've we've enjoyed having you, and congratulations again on your first time out. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be on your show, and thanks so much for the for the chance. All right, we'll talk to you again. Jarrett Lippman, who uh, ran in District 9, uh, City Councilman John Courage, won that race, and it was his uh, fourth and final term for Councilman Courage. Uh, 541 now and 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Um there's some audio I want to play for you, uh, Don, if we can get cut number four ready. Uh, this is the uh, audio from the subway train uh, with uh, Jordan Neely and the uh, Marine, whose name we now know as Daniel Penny, and some other passengers. And this is the moments or the seconds after they have uh, restrained uh this guy on the subway. Take a listen to this, and I want to. I want to talk about this. Cut number four. What what they're doing? I don't know how, how well you can hear it, but the the passengers are thanking Daniel Penny. And at the same time, they are all sort of consulting or advising on putting him in the recovery position uh, so that he doesn't choke on his own spit or suffocate. Um, so the, these are two aspects of this story that I think have been mostly underreported. A, there was a lot of gratitude around Daniel Penny. Now, he may face criminal charges, and that's a, a separate matter. Um, but these people rode this subway, some of them, every day for years, and they had been bothered, harassed, frightened by this dude for years. 
And now somebody had helped them. Somebody had lifted a finger. The other thing I hear is, uh, maybe belatedly and, and maybe too little too late, but compassion. Um, they are tending to him, the man that's down. I, I wonder why, if I have this, and I grabbed it off Twitter, I wonder why this isn't more of the focus of the media coverage. I think I know why. I think you do, too. The subway story in New York is being spun in some interesting ways. We talked about this on Friday. People immediately started protesting the NYPD, who had nothing to do with it. We're not there. And then over the weekend, people started blocking subway uh, tracks, forcing trains to stop. And you had the scenario, I saw a couple of clips like this, and I'm sure it happened numerous times. You had the scenario of New Yorkers trying to get to work, pleading with the protesters to get out of the way, and the protesters piously refusing to get off the track because no trains are rolling until there's justice or something like that. What about the people that got to get to work? What about the people that have someplace they need to be? What about people for whom if they don't get there, there's consequences? Screw them. And we've seen this before, right? I mean, how many times have you seen protesters block a highway so that people can't get to work or get to school or goods and services can't be delivered. But there's something else going on here, which I think is very interesting. This whole conversation, since this event in New York City, this whole conversation has been about what are your rights to defend yourself? When really what the conversation needs to be about is the need to defend yourself. We actually need people to think, to know that they can and must defend themselves and the people around them. And I, I don't want to hear the word vigilante. Okay. We're not talking about going out at night and riding the subways looking for a fight. We're talking about in the course of your day to day actions and movements, knowing that it is your right and it is important to a society that you defend yourself. This really, uh, I don't know, this, this just stopped me in my tracks. I just saw this on my Twitter feed. Lawrence Jones tweeted this out. There is a little boy named William who is six years old, and he's now the only surviving member of his family after they went to the mall in Allen on Saturday. And I know, you know, and I know what people are trying to say about this tragedy. And the first thing we should be saying and doing is praying. And we should pray for the victims, and we should pray for the families, and we should pray for the witnesses, and we should pray for the first responders and the things they saw and the things they did. And we should pray for ourselves because we are in this world. We have made of it what we have made of it. We should pray for William. 
And then we have to decide how we feel about all this. And it occurred to me over the weekend, between the Subway story and the Allen story, we are treating people who commit crime as if they need to be made safe from the rest of us. We are, we, we've got this upside down and backwards. We are debating when you should be able to defend yourself, how you should be able to defend yourself. Should you be able, if you own a gun, to bring it with you to the mall? Should you be able to restrain someone that's threatening and scaring people on a subway car where there are no police? Our politicians, although they wouldn't put it this way, I'll say it this way, are trying to make crime risk-free. They're trying to make sure that the bad guys will never have to be worried about or menaced by a good guy. And they're not just doing that because they're rotten human beings. They're doing that because they want us to live in fear. They'll say they don't, but they really do. Scaring people is what politicians are really good at. And then making them feel dependent on them and their remedies for that fear is their second biggest talent. So they outline or describe the problem, and then lo and behold, every single time, they are the solution. More power, of course, and total dependence on them. We have to think about how we move around in this world. And instead of trying to put limits on self-defense or tell people when they're within their rights, we actually should encourage self-defense. Self-defense protects us and other people and property. And criminals should be the ones worried about what might happen to them. Not law-abiding people on a subway or at a mall or a movie theater. And we should presume that people have the right to self-defense. We should actually hope that they will exercise that right. I, I don't buy this argument that, well, you wouldn't want to live in a world where everybody took matters into their own hands. Um, I hate to break it to you, but that's the way the world works most places, most of history. Now, common sense says that you aren't looking for trouble. But what we're talking about is the difference between people rising to an occasion or sitting there and wondering, do I want to be a hashtag? What if somebody's videoing this? What will the DA in my community do about charging me? We can't live like that. That's not going to be a civilized society. It is reasonable to use physical force in our defense. And this idea that only the state can do that on our behalf is a pretty new idea. And again, it's not the idea all around the world. The risk, the, the X factor, the uncertainty should be with the criminal not with the person just trying to get to work or go shopping. Why are our politicians making it risk-free to be a criminal? 
and risky to be a man who protects himself and the people around him. And so, in this story on the subway, we're, we're awaiting the criminal charges for this Daniel Penny. I don't know what they'll be or if they'll be, but you see the message that sends? And then it's natural for people like you and me to have empathy or compassion. We look at the man who's dead on the ground and we think, well, you know, we we hate to see that. But they're ratcheting up our tolerance is what they're doing. They're, they're ratcheting up our, you know, we're like the frog in the boiling pot of water. They're making us more and more hardened to the world. Oh, the world's just a dangerous place. There's just people out there. You never know. Got to get these guns off the street because there's a lot of people out there. And yet, if you really think about, like, the subway story, that was years and years of failure by the people that are now telling you, leave it to them. It came to that on that subway car last week because they repeatedly, purposely failed to do their jobs about the, the guy that was hassling people and had attacked people. In the case of the Alan Mall shooter, we don't have all the story yet, but in the early going... It would appear to be yet again somebody who fell through the cracks of the system that assures us we can leave everything to them and we'll be just fine. They assure us that the danger is not trusting them. But all the evidence, all the stories, everything you're reading and hearing every day argues against trusting them. I think you should listen to that voice. Well, we've all been in awkward moments, Christian, right? I mean, it could be a family gathering. It could be a... Awkward moment at work, first date, you know, these things happen. I'll put this awkward moment up against any awkward moment. This is cup number nine. This is from American Idol after the coronation of King Charles. Listen to this. (laughs) What a party. What a party. It was unbelievable. It was incredible. And we're Katie here Perry. for the Coronation Concert at Windsor Castle. Now, we're trying mm-hmm. to figure out what can we do to bring some something different to the show. Uh, something different. So, uh, if uh, I would like to... Uh, <clears throat> Katie, I just... Oh! Kate, excuse me. I, oh, I just, yes, uh, I goodness! Did, uh, surprise, I have a surprise. Please. Please. Yes. In the King and the Queen. No, I'm not. Because I just wanted to check um, how much, how long you'll be using this room for. <laughs> We have to give the room up right away. I just wanted to check. Thank you so much for coming. No, but thank you so much for your brilliant performance. And and Katie, it was wonderful. It really was. Are we making too much noise? Wait, wait now. But but we understand there's a party. Ah, you've heard about that, have you? Well, you're throwing the party right next door. Oh, that's right. So we better, had you not better take you to the party? But you're busy with all these other things. Well, as soon as we finish, we're coming to the party. We're coming to the party. (laughs) (laughs) You think so? Well, thank you, you for stopping. Bless you. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank, thank you. you. We love you guys. Thank you. Thank you. And congratulations. Thank you very much. We we love you guys, Christian, and congratulations. We love you guys. 
I mean, just from start to finish, who thought on either side this was a good idea? It it felt like a weird mix. I've never felt sympathetic for Charles and Camilla, but I actually felt a little sorry for them. Kind of reminds me of the time I went to a Mexican food restaurant in Spain. It's completely unrelated, but you'll get it. Finally found Mexican food in Madrid, only to sit down, salsa comes out, and potato chips, not corn chips. Oh. It's like, hang on. This kind of sort of close, but... (laughs) Just I'm going to have to say, really. I think uh, I think Katy Perry and Lionel Richie were worse than potato chips in Spain. I'm just going to have to. I agree. Yeah, <laughs> go shade it a little bit in that in that <laughs> direction. But we love, in the words of Lionel Richie, who speaks for all of America, we love you guys, the King and Queen of England. <laughs> yeah, love you guys. Right. <laughs> You're voting in the JR poll today about uh, the border, which is going to be a big story this week with Title 42. Uh, is the border uh, being handled incompetently or intentionally by the Biden administration? Uh, how do you vote on that? 210-599-5555. Uh, President Biden did an interview Friday night on MSNBC um, that was mostly underhand softball, you know, cream puff uh, questions. Like this one about his age. Take a listen to this. Cut number eight. There's not a Fortune 500 company in the world looking to hire a CEO in his 80s. So why would an 82-year-old Joe Biden be the right person for the most important job in the world? Because I've acquired a hell of a lot of wisdom. I know more than the vast majority of people. I'm more experienced than anybody's ever run for the office. And I think I've proven myself to be honorable as well as also effective. Oh, Don, we need to go back over that. There's so much there. Can we play that again? I may have you stop it. There's not a Fortune 500 company in the world looking to hire a CEO in his 80s. So why would an 82-year-old Joe Biden be the right person for the most important job in the world? Because I've acquired a hell of a lot of wisdom. Stop. Okay. Wisdom was the first answer. That's an odd word to apply to yourself. Like, I, I don't, you know, you can think you're smart, but I, I, would you sit there and say, well, I've got a lot of wisdom. That just naturally seems like a word other people have to apply. And Joe Biden may be old, but he's never been wise. And you don't become wise just by being old. All right, continue. I know more than the vast majority of people. I'm more experienced Stop. than anybody. He knows more than the vast majority of people. Um, about what? I mean, like intelligence briefings or life or, or what, what does that mean? All right, continue. And I think I've proven myself to be honorable as well as also effective. Okay, honorable and effective. Of course, she doesn't ask for any examples. <laughs> honorable. We'll talk about honorable in a minute. Mr. President, you haven't been effective. You're, you, you've, you've been ineffective. I'll, I'll say the only way he's been effective, and I know this is not how he means it, he's been an effective facade or front for some pretty radical people. 
that would never have gotten anywhere near power in this country if they had to run for it under their own names and put their own faces on the campaign. We, we would not elect people like Neera Tanden and Susan Rice to the presidency. It would never happen. But you can put them in the position of really governing the country if they ride around in the belly of the Trojan horse named Joe Biden. As far as honorable, well, um, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence to the contrary. And, in fact, uh, Congressman Jim Comer, uh, who's chairing the House Oversight Committee and um, is the one that has been investigating and holding hearings uh, about the business relationships of the Biden family, uh, both during and while he was in the presidency, I'm sorry, prior to and since he's been in the presidency, he said this on Sunday on Fox Business Network. Take a listen to what Jim Comer had to say. Cut number six. My message to the Department of Justice is very loud and clear. Do not indict Hunter Biden before Wednesday when you have the opportunity to see the evidence that the House Oversight Committee will produce with respect to the web of LLCs, with respect to the number of adversarial countries that this family influence peddled in. This is not just about the president's son. This is about the entire Biden family, including the president of the United States. So we believe there are a whole lot of accounts that the IRS and the DOJ don't know about because we don't believe they've done a whole lot of digging in this. And we have. Uh, we've spent the past hundred days pouring over bank documents. I've used subpoena power to get these bank documents. We've been meeting with uh, former associates of the Bidens in their different influence peddling schemes. We've been meeting with whistleblowers. We know exactly uh, what this family was doing. And by all accounts from the, the media reports that we're getting, what they're looking at charging Hunter Biden on is a, is a slap on the wrist. It's a drop in the bucket. So Wednesday will be a very big day uh, for the American people in getting the facts presented to them so that they can know the truth. And then the Department of Justice can finally do what they should have done years ago. Now, I wonder if... Uh... I wonder if that's if he really can deliver on that. I don't know too much about Jim Comer. I just started hearing about him when the Republicans won the House last year. I, I um, that that's a very big, bold promise he just made. Like, hey, everything's going to be different on Wednesday. You're going to hear stuff that will change everything on Wednesday. That's a lot to deliver on. So we'll see. But yeah, from what we've already heard, what has been reported over the years, what whistleblowers and business associates of the Bidens have said, um, honorable, no. Compromised, corrupt, opportunistic, yes. But when I heard the uh, the question, that was Stephanie Rule on MSNBC, when I heard that question, I, I realized that that is the most obvious question Joe Biden is going to get. I mean, she had to ask that. Anybody that interviews Joe Biden, I don't care who you are, you've got to ask the age question. So therefore, the White House knows that the age question will be asked. Are you telling me that that answer he gave, which we just played, is that what they're going with? I've got wisdom. I know more than anybody else in the country. That's what they've arrived at? That's going to be the answer? 
Because when you know a question is coming and everyone knows you know it's coming, that puts that that moves the bar up on the answer. Like you you're not improvising it or you can't turn it into a joke or avoid it. This is this is the question like when you run for president the first time, you're going to be asked why should you be president? And if you can't give an answer that is about you, your goose is cooked. This happened to Ted Kennedy famously. He was running against Jimmy Carter in the Democratic primaries in 1979 and 1980. Jimmy Carter was a very unpopular president. Ted Kennedy was the, the, you know, the heir to the, the Kennedy mystique, which was still a thing 45 years ago. And Ted Kennedy was given a, a pretty good shot at possibly upsetting and defeating Jimmy Carter for renomination. Now, we all know that didn't happen. Carter was renominated. He lost to Reagan. But there was a moment in Kennedy's ascension, and I think Roger Mudd was the guy on, on CBS, I think, if I remember correctly, who asked the question, why should you be president? And a man who had wanted to be president for years and years and years, whose brothers had run for president, whose older brother had been president, could not give an answer, did not have an answer. And that, to me, is what Joe Biden did Friday night. That's that's not an answer. I'm old and wise. I know stuff. <laughs> that's, that's like a barroom answer. Uh, we do... Um, we do have the JR poll powered by River City Oral Surgery. If uh, Do you think the Biden border policies or his handling of the border are incompetent or are they intentional? Now, I made the argument earlier. I, I think it's intentional. I know that when we disagree with somebody, we like to call them dumb or incompetent or in, unable. But, but really, it, it is by design that our border is being overwhelmed. It is by design that border communities are under siege. It is by design that the rest of the country is getting used to conditions and numbers and influxes uh, that are almost hard to believe. So when you when you think about answering that question, it would only be incompetent if you believed that Joe Biden and Alejandro Mayorkas and and the other people in this administration, they really want a secure border. They really believe in the sovereignty of a border. They just don't know how to do it, or they just can't. They don't have the resources. They don't have the money. The Republicans won't let them. Uh, we don't have enough people. But that's a bunch of bull, because this is an authoritarian federal government that has shut down an entire country over a virus that scares and intimidates people into doing what it wants them to do. They enforce the borders of other countries. They could absolutely enforce the border of this one. So it's only a choice. It is not an inability or a failure, I think. Tell me what you think. 210-599-5555. So the president's running for re-election. He's going to get the age question. And I want to play it again. This is how he answered the age question when Stephanie Rule from MSNBC asked it on Friday night. 
There's not a Fortune 500 company in the world looking to hire a CEO in his 80s. So why would an 82-year-old Joe Biden be the right person for the most important job in the world? Because I've acquired a hell of a lot of wisdom. I know more than the vast majority of people. I'm more experienced than anybody's ever run for the office. And I think I've proven myself to be honorable as well as also effective. Mm. Uh, it's a it's a it's an it's a nothing burger. It's a blowhard bored. I sound bored. I can't even believe I have to answer this. Obviously I'm wise and I know more than everybody else. I can't believe you're this broad is even asking me this. So a question they must have prepared for. That's their answer. That's his answer. I must feel bad for his handlers because I feel like maybe they prepared a better answer and he just forgot it. <laughs> just couldn't couldn't pull it out. This is what I want to play for you. This was in uh, '79. Ted Kennedy is going to primary Jimmy Carter, uh, and of course the Kennedy name synonymous with the presidency and running for president. It's Ted's turn to do that. So he sits down with. Roger Mudd on CBS News and gets the obvious question. Listen to this. On the stump, Kennedy can be dominating, imposing, and masterful. But off the stump, in personal interviews, he can become stilted, elliptical, and at times appear as if he really doesn't want America to get to know him. Why do you want to be president? Well, I'm... uh, Were I to to make the, uh, the announcement and uh, to run. The reasons that I would run is because I have a great belief in this country that it is as more natural resources than any nation of the world, as the greatest educated population in the world, the greatest technology of any country in the world, uh, the greatest capacity for innovation in the world, and the greatest political system in the world. And yet um, I see at uh, the current time, that uh, most of the industrial nations of the world are exceeding us in terms of productivity, are doing better than us in terms of meeting the problems of inflation, that they're dealing with their problems of energy and their problems of unemployment. And it just seems to me that uh, this nation can cope and deal with its problems in a way that it has in the past. We're facing complex issues and problems in this nation at this time, but we have faced similar challenges at other times. And the energies and the resourcefulness of this nation, I think, should be focused on these problems in a way that uh, brings a sense of uh, restoration uh, in this country. By its I mean, people. it's just, it's just, it's, it was, it was mind blowing to people who heard it at the time because it's like an answer you would give if it was a bunch of people just sitting around the table having some dinner. But this is a guy that's going to run for president, uh, coming from a family of people that run for president. And the first thing out of his mouth is, "Well, we got a lot of natural resources in the ground." What? What? I mean, even other politicians that were favorable to Kennedy were were had their faces in their hands like, oh, no, he's, he's done it again. And I remember at the time, this was seen as a disastrous 
answer. And Biden's answer is worse than this. <laughs> There's not even any detail. I mean, at least at least Teddy gets rolling with some, well, we've got technology and we've got a good political system and smart people. I mean, Biden, I'm I'm just I'm very wise. I'm just a super wise, super intelligent guy. He's so smart that he doesn't he doesn't know what Hunter's doing. Because I require a hell of a lot worse, of wisdom. Or worse, he does know what Hunter's doing. My apologies, I didn't get around to checking the uh, Jack Chat line tonight, so we'll play some tomorrow night. But normally at this time of the show uh, is where we go to this uh, line we've set up. It's 210-599-5550. And if you want to leave a comment about a topic that we've already moved on from, or if you're listening to the podcast and therefore not live, or whatever, maybe you're just... It's easier for you to leave it this way than to call into the show. Whatever it is, whatever your reason, I, you know, I'm good with it. But we set up this phone number, uh, the Jack Chat line, 210-599-5550. And you just leave your first name, your city or town, and your comment. You gotta do, you gotta do all three. Okay. Or we're not going to play it. And then we'll play some of those tomorrow night around this time. 210-599-5550. Yeah, I don't know um, what to expect about this big bombshell promise that they're making, the Republicans are making about Wednesday, where they're saying we've got um, evidence of um, bank records and so forth that compromises not only Hunter Biden, but President Biden and other members of the family. Jim Comer saying... We know exactly what this family was doing. Wednesday will be a very big day. I'll believe it when I hear it. What do you think? 210-599-5550. You know that uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. is running uh, for the Democratic nomination. We've talked about this a little bit. He He's an interesting guy. He is not somebody you necessarily want to fall in love with. He's saying some very good things about Biden and the Democrats. He is um, sounding very reasonable about a lot of things that most Democrats these days, I'm sorry to say, don't sound very reasonable about. But on the other hand, as I pointed out, you know, he, he's the sum total of his life and his experiences. And in his lifetime, he has been a climate authoritarian. And... Um, Somebody that has some pretty out there ideas. He did an interview last night on WABC in New York where he talked about how certain he is that the CIA was involved in the murder of his uncle. Now, let me just say at the outset, I I think it's plausible. I am an open-minded person. I don't accept the Warren Commission report. I don't. I don't have a fully, if you were to ask me, well, what do you think happened, Jack? I don't, I don't have a fully fleshed out sequence of events. I couldn't, I couldn't write it in book form. I couldn't, 
But I just I don't believe what we've been told. I think there's a lot we haven't been told. My reading of that era tells me that JFK made very powerful enemies. He was challenging orthodoxies. He was he was threatening apple carts that had never been upset before and haven't been upset since. Okay? So Robert Kennedy believing that his uncle was the victim of a conspiracy within the government is plausible. Here's my question. Why would you why would you bring that up while running for president? I mean, this is where I, I guess I again I question candidates get a lot of prep and do a lot of prep for interviews. And the reason for that is not because they're they're unable to wing it, but because your answers are so important you want to you want to think them out ahead of time maybe even sketch them out or write them out ahead of time what you say will define you in, in what universe would a guy running for president wanting you to vote for him for president start talking about the CIA in 1963 i mean i i realize it's personal but that's just as bizarre and the the interesting thing to me is I, I really don't think we've received, I know they say 98% of the documents have been declassified or whatever the number is, percentage is. I know that, you know, Trump declassified some, supposedly Biden has declassified some. What we're looking for isn't going to be a document. There isn't going to be a document that says, hey, uh, CIA, now's the time. Uh, make sure you take him out in Dallas. I mean, that's going to be written down in a memo. There's no document for that, right? Okay, so I don't know how we'll ever find out or if we'll ever find out. I suspect we probably never will. But I'm just trying to figure out what Robert Kennedy is up to here. Because, you know, if you really believe that, Mr. Kennedy, it's not a good idea for you to be talking about it out loud, right? And if you ever somehow, and it's a long shot of long shots, if you ever somehow became president, why then, and only then, would you be able to do anything about it? I mean, I I don't think anything short of a president who was determined to reveal whatever is known or stored or being kept I don't I don't think you get to the truth the people involved are dead they're gone it's not written down on paper in a folder somewhere every scrap of publicly available audio video uh uh, eyewitness accounts from November 22nd, 1963, et cetera, et cetera, has been poured over. Hundreds of authors, at least hundreds, maybe more, of authors have gone over the same materials, written books. We've talked about this on the show. We talked about the late Richard Belzer's book where they go and they track down all these mysterious deaths of people that were eyewitnesses. So, yeah, I mean, I I think there could be something to what he's saying. I'm just trying just trying to figure out why he's saying it. 
it's bizarre. But he's a, he's a bizarre. He's an interesting guy, but he's a bizarre guy. I mean, he and Mar- he and and uh, Mar- what's her name, Marianne Williamson? Is that it done? Marianne Williamson, Marjorie, Marianne, Marianne, right? It's Marianne Williamson. Um, I mean, just think think of the think of the dinner conversation you could have with those two. I mean, you, you could sit for hours with the two of them. They're never going to become president, but they're definitely ideas people. John Kerry wanted to be president once. Remember John Kerry? He's now the climate czar for the Biden administration. This was interesting. I saw this uh, this morning. He apparently attended the coronation, though he was not in the U.S. delegation. The U.S. delegation was led by Mrs. Biden and her uh, granddaughter, a young lady named Finnegan. Kerry shows up, apparently flew there in his private jet, must have had an invitation. He's wearing a suit, and the suit is bedecked with military medals. So it's a regular, you know, business suit. And he's, he's got two or three rows of medals. And he did serve in the military, served in Vietnam. But as a lot of people pointed out, he also very famously came back from Vietnam uh, as an anti-war veteran who threw his medals over the fence, either at the White House or the Pentagon, I forget which, one of those two. And... um he would say in interviews for many, many years later that he he didn't want them and had given them back, had surrendered them, and um, talked about how the, the, the Vietnam War was immoral and perverse and uh, the medals lost their integrity because of all that. And then there he is this weekend... Wearing medals. I, I, I'm presuming they weren't Fiesta medals. I'm presuming they were medals he was entitled to. But w- when, when did this happen? When did we go back to wearing these? The whole thing, the whole, the whole coronation was like a dress-up party. It was like watching adults do what's cute when kids do it. Like watching Charles and Camilla with those gigantic crowns on their head, and they had all these different sticks and scepters and things. Is it just me, or did it have a kind of Alice in Wonderland, um, kids playing, pulling everything out of the... You know how when kids are a certain age, they'll pull everything out of the toy box and just like put on all their little hats and their little things, or they'll hand you stuff, and you'll be sitting there holding all these... It just had that look to it. You know, I never felt that way. I never saw a single picture of Queen Elizabeth where she didn't look completely regal, composed, at home with the trappings of the office. And I didn't see a single picture this weekend of Charles and Camilla where they did look at home with the trappings of the office. It looked, and 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 and, and look, it's none of my business, and I'm not one of their subjects, but. That's just how it looked to me. And then to see John Kerry all of a sudden 
The medals are back. If anybody will ask him about that, they can catch up with him, right? Quickly remind you again, we have the uh, Jack Chat line. I didn't play the calls today because I that was on me. I didn't check them. So we'll have those tomorrow, but you can leave comments on any topic, on the poll question, on guests, on opinions, on things we covered. Um, just call 210-599-5550. Leave your first name, leave your city or town, and your comment. You gotta, gotta leave those first two or we can't play it. Um, we'll play those tomorrow. And, um, on the JR poll, the question was, do you think, um, Biden's handling of the border is incompetent or intentional? And 84% think it's intentional. 16% incompetent. Of a new question tomorrow, we get started at four. You can also find the JR poll anytime, powered by River City Oral Surgery at KTSA.com. Uh, there is a bill in Illinois that would require new buildings to be EV charger capable. So if you were building a house, a multifamily, condos, anything multi-unit, you would have to include electric vehicle charging in a formula to be determined by how many units or occupants there would be. You know, if there's X number of occupants, there's got to be Y number of chargers. And um, we, we, we talk on and off about the EV issue uh, and being a car buff, I'm always reading up on what the car companies are doing. So I'll just tell you this, and we'll get more into it another day. There is a panic, I think, with the politicians. I think they are starting to panic. Um, because the adoption of electric vehicles is not going smoothly. And the progress toward their mandates, toward their drop-dead dates, it, it, there is almost no way... They're going to make it. And if they ever start moving their deadlines back, their, their deadlines are dead. So we're right, I think, in a very interesting moment, like a very critical matter of months to a year where we're going to see where this really goes. I know you've heard the futures EVs. You've seen all the, all the car companies are advertising nothing but their electric vehicles, even though their electric vehicles are 1% of their fleet. Um, it's all it's stuff like this in Illinois. This is all whistling past the graveyard. It isn't going well. The car companies are pushing back big time. The unions are now pushing back big time. And rightly or wrongly, the unions may be the ones the politicians listen to the most, and you know why that is. So uh, it bears watching, and we'll watch it, along with many other things. Don't forget, you can get this show as a podcast at KTSA.com, where we're back here live at 4 tomorrow.